Um, so this is a topic that I've thought and prayed a lot about. This kind of goes back all the way to our uh, our protests at the Hastings Municipal uh, building where, you know, several of us went in and spoke against masks and the guy directly in front of me said, well, we've just got to wear our masks. Love our neighbor. We've just got to love our neighbor and wear our masks, regardless if they work. And that just rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that's right. Um, and then as time went on, you know, I've heard multiple evangelical thought leaders call for unity under the guise of loving our neighbors. And it all just felt wrong. It was like an attempt to bond the modern church with the world, with a stance of solidarity with the world in any number of things, whether it was COVID, COVID restrictions, COVID vaccines, the new woke movement, social justice, allowing same-sex attracted people to show no remorse for their sin. I want to focus in on loving thy neighbor and what I think and what I think the Bible shows it actually means. So one thing that's pretty evident and important is, is that the American church lacks biblical literacy. Um, I don't think I'm speaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, this scrolls backwards of every other thing in my life. Okay. <laughs> so I don't think it's ever been any more clear uh, that when you have believers and non-believers alike, look at a verse like Luke 10, 27 and see love thy neighbor and just roll with it. You know? Oh, yeah. My bad. <laughs> oh, okay. It shows what's next. Um, I'm silly. Oh, it does have some of the transitions. Okay. Fun, fun. All right. Um, and they just roll with it, you know? Let your neighbor do whatever they want. It's not hurting anyone. Love them where they are. Let it be. I mean, we could throw out any more catchphrases that we've, that we've heard through the last four years. Uh, the context of this parable... I, I think are, are rather huge. And so, you know, everybody likes to focus in on verses 25 through 28, but a lot of the times it's what's said before that that's also important. So I'm going to go back to verse 23, and I think this is pretty telling. This is, so this is Jesus. He turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So parables, a lot of the time, are riddles to those who cannot see and to those that cannot hear. They don't get to make sense of, of, what they, of what they mean, and they're just left dumbstruck. So we're going to take a look at the whole parable and the surrounding context for this little phrase that gets so unabashedly thrown around by the depraved. So if I could have somebody, I guess this doesn't probably work with the microphone or anything. I was going to have somebody read this, so I'll just read it. Um, so Luke 10, 25 through 28, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So... You know, I know we, Brian and everybody that speaks here talks about the law quite a bit. And so what this little three verse section here has done is it's condensed most of the Old Testament law into two halves. It's taken the first half of the Ten Commandments, which are all about how we should love God. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments are all about how we should love our neighbor. And he's condensed them into these two phrases. And if we do these things, 
we, we will live, we will have eternal life. But that's a pretty daunting task, right? I mean, it's hard to love somebody like you love yourself. We have no problem loving ourselves how we love ourselves, but it's hard to even love our friends <laughs> like we love ourselves. So what, what, this, what the lawyer or the, the scribe, more than likely he was an Old Testament scribe, did is he took the verses Leviticus 19.18, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Then in Matthew 22, Jesus says, In these is the fulfillment of all the law, the prophets, and the prophets. So the first half and the second half, these really wrap these up into a nice little bow. So we have a problem, though. The scribe doesn't stop there. He doesn't go and do these things. He is full of maybe himself, maybe self-righteousness, full of something. And he asks Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Like, I'm doing everything else right. Like, I love the Lord my God outwardly with all my heart, with all my strength, with all my soul, with all my mind. And I love my neighbor as myself. But, like, maybe there's a difference of opinion on what neighbor means, right? So Jesus then starts into the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the backdrop for that... Oh, no. Okay. So, the <laughs> so parables... Uh, Parables are devices that Jesus used to teach that were a riddle for, of sorts for those unable to see and to hear the truth, as we saw back in Luke 23 and 24. So the backdrop for this story, though, is the road to Jericho. So we have this long, winding, 20-mile road from Jerusalem up in the mountains down to Jericho in the valley. This is a winding path with sheer cliffs on each side of the path that, you know, people didn't travel at night. It was like North Omaha. You don't go there at night. <laughs> so anyway, so the lawyer asks this question, says, you know, so, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says to him, or he asks, sorry, I got ahead of myself. So he asks this question. Jesus tells him, yep, fulfill the law and get eternal life. So he's doing everything right. So who is my neighbor? The Israelites and the, the priests, the Levites, the scribes, they, uh, they didn't think even too kindly of the common Jews. Um, there are many times in the Bible, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, or you have heard it, or any number of those things. You've heard it taught that, and then he follows it up with, but I say, and kind of either refutes or adds on to these commands that they started. So many times uh, in, in Matthew 5.43, for example, he says, you have heard it was said, love thy neighbor and hate your enemy. So the priests and the scribes taught that the enemies weren't considered your neighbors. So that what they had done is they had taken Psalm 139, 21 through 22, which says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become mine enemies to mean that we as people can ascribe God's judgment and hate his enemies for him. And then at some point along the way, they thought, well, we should hate our enemies too. And we'll just do, we'll just go that way rather than letting God have his justice and using this to justify hating those in their own society, especially even the Samaritans, which were just up North. So this is a picture from the actual road to Jericho in between Jerusalem and uh, in Jericho. So you can see 
kind of, you know, the topographical map doesn't quite give it this depth and understanding of like how sheer these cliff sides were and how crazy this path in the mountains is. Um, so we're going to get into the Good Samaritan. So we're going to go back then again to verses 23 and 24 before that. And, you know, he says again, blessed are the eyes that see what you see and blessed are the ears that hear what you hear. So the lawyer being stuck in his self-righteousness, the scribe is blind to the parable. Jordan, will you read this? <clears throat> sure. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. So he stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, so who all here has heard this parable before? <laughs> Just about everybody. No, everybody. Um, this is very well known. It's so well known that even, you know, those that aren't in the church and going to Bible study and everything, have heard this parable. And it feels like, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Go and do likewise. Love your neighbor as the Samaritan did. So the scribe listens to this, and he's blind to it. He doesn't understand what's going on. And in verse 36, Jesus asks him outright, who was the neighbor? And the scribe has to answer the Samaritan, but the language is interesting because he won't even say the Samaritan. He won't say the Samaritan's name. He won't give him credit. Instead, he says the one who had mercy. So Jesus is proverbially backhanded the lawyer with this, with this. And you might say, well, how? Well, let's dig into it a little bit. So we're going to talk about the other players in this before we get to the Samaritans. So we have the priests and the Levites. Oh, this is fun. And now it's dark and it didn't... Oh, fantastic. Okay, so the things that you can't read. Sorry, Internet. Um, the Levites. Yeah, yeah. So they were, they were set up to do the special services for the tabernacle and the temple. So the priests were an even more select group of Levites that usually had to do with their age and, like, physical abilities that they could do. And then, obviously, then they had to remain ceremonially clean a lot of the time because they were the only ones allowed to go in to the holy place. And then obviously the high priest then was the one that could only go into the holy of holies. So in a long, long way, all priests were Levites. Not all Levites were priests. So we've talked about the other guys. So who were the Samaritans? So we have to go back to the days of the kings after Solomon ruled over Israel, his son Rehoboam made some bad, bad decisions involving forced labor, which led to schism in the kingdom, which led Israel being split into the northern and southern kingdoms. So both kingdoms went down a path of corruption and sin, despite numerous warnings from the prophets sent by God. 
The northern kingdom never had a God-fearing king, which led to their somewhat quicker descent and eventual fall to the Assyrians in 721 BC. Many northern Israelites were led off into captivity. However, some were left and intermarried with the Assyrians, becoming the half-Jew, half-Gentile people known as the Samaritans. So why was this parable such a slap in the face, especially to a Levite and a scribe? This was not a civic lawyer or a criminal lawyer. Like I've said, this was an Old Testament scribe, an expert on the law, standing up and trying to trap Jesus with a question. So in using a Samaritan to show mercy and grace, it's kind of a big deal. So why so much hatred? Samaritans were a mix spiritually of corrupt Israelites and pagans. They had created their own religion that the Jews considered heresy. Their center of worship was a temple on Mount Gerizim, where they claimed Moses had originally intended for the Israelites to worship. To the Jews, these people were worse than pagans because they weren't just ignorant. They defied and mutated the Jewish religion and, and the scripture. There are, oddly enough, still several hundred Samaritans living in northern Israel to this day, practicing their faith, which centered on the Pentateuch, which the first five books of the Bible, but they have a different version, and I'm not sure what all the differences are, but enough to make it uh, a pretty bad permutation. And, Mount, Je and Mount, Mount Gerizim is where their temple is. So now that we know all of this, we can kind of see why this story was such an affront to the scribe. The two characters who knew the law and what it teaches to do did not display mercy or compassion to their neighbor. The half-breed mutt does. So what didn't the scribe understand? The scribe was so assured of he was following the law outwardly that he had no recompense for his actions. He only thought, maybe we have a different definition of neighbor, which the parable showed indeed they did. But it was more than just a different definition. It was a different heart. And I think it's important when we look right in verse 29, it says, but to justify himself. He knew more than likely he was already in the wrong, but he tried to justify himself. But he did not have the wisdom to know what Jesus was really saying. And this, like in so many other places throughout the New Testament, Jesus is, yes, using a parable to teach the crowd, but he is also evangelizing to the individual. See, he often did this when the tar with the targeted attacks of the scribes and the priests attempt. And, and so he did this when they attacked in an attempt to have compassion and admonition. So I think it's also important as we, as we talk about, you know, okay, so the priest didn't do the right thing. The Levite didn't do the right thing, but the Samaritan did. And a lot of people think, you know, maybe there are all these reasons. Well, maybe the priest had to remain clean. Maybe that's why he didn't go across the road. And the Levite, maybe he thought that this guy must have committed some crime, so he deserves to be punished. And they walked on. No, they didn't. The story was made up. Jesus made this up. There was no outside motive other than to try to show this scribe that nice things can happen from good other than just the holy and, or the self-holy and self-righteous. But it's also important to remember that just because you follow the law does not mean your heart is in the right place. And just because your heart happens to be in the right place one time does not mean you are not walking in the shadows. So I think this goes both ways. So anyways, this is a really long way to say that the laws can be brought into two things. Love your Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love thy neighbor as yourself. Mark 12, 31 says there are no greater commands than these. So 
Oh, I moved my water. That was tricky of myself. So we could take this and we could say, yep, we need to love our neighbor as ourselves and move on. But what does that mean? How, like, it sounds easy. It's not. And it sounds like, well, maybe there's something more to it than that. It sounds too simple. So instead of looking at it and moving on, we're going to exegete this passage. So Jesus uses specific parable to show that there are no greater commandments greater than these. We can take that at face value and just love our neighbor, whatever we find ourselves thinking that means, or whatever the world thinks it means, or we can look at it a little deeper. So the New Testament was written in Greek, so let's go to the Greek. There are six different words for love in Greek, and that's why it's such a neat language, and English is kind of dumb. We have one word to mean all these different things. Um, so let's define the terms. We're going to look at neighbor first. It's a little bit easier to look at. Um, in English, it's just a combination of two words, nay, meaning near and fellow, and bore, which means someone that lives nearby, a dweller. So not that bad, right? So that comes from the Greek word, though, plesion, which means fellow. Oh, I already said that stuff. So let's also look at the Greek loves. So there's six different definitions of love in the Greek. We have agape, reasoned love, charity. We have eros, passionate husband-wife love. We have philia, loyalty to friends love. We have storge, empathetical, like the love between parent and child. We have philoshia, self-love, from basic humanities all the way to moral flaw and vanity. And then we have xenia, which is like the being a, being a very hospitable host. So Tara, thank you for having xenia love for all of us this evening. So the love here in, that, in, this, uh, in this passage is agapeseis, which is the love of reason, charitable, helpfulness to those in need. So obviously derived from agape. Now we're on track. So we, we get lots of stuff like this, right? Lots of bright colors and, you know, the world's love. You know, here's a great quote from all of our favorite, favorite romantic, romantic uh, author. There is no love like the first. Well, there should only be one love. You know, then we get then we get fun pictures like this where we get to include rainbow colors. You know, love. <laughs> what triggered? <laughs> you know, love love thy neighbor. It was not a suggestion. You know, and then in the last four years we got things like this. <laughs> love thy neighbor. Sanitize your hands. Oh, don't worry, we'll get there. So, how does our culture define love? They kind of don't. You do you, let it be. Love wins. One love. There you go. Raising canes. Love is blind. Live and let love. You know, just whatever. Jesus put love first. Exactly. And then... Oh, no. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there so that it doesn't freak out again. So love is not what the world makes it out to be. It's not all these fancy things. It's not these romantic ideals, at least in this passage. And I think that's what we need to understand, is that all love is not the same love. Okay, I'm in the right spot now. So I'm going to take a logical leap here as well, and for argument's sake, say our culture can't think about how words have origins or meanings and are more than just things we use to communicate instead of grunts and gurgles. 
the culture would probably look at love thy neighbor and think about that love. And maybe its origin should be like the, the philousia, the, the self-love. Or philia, the brotherly love. That's why Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. You know, this loyalty. Or maybe, and quite honestly, they'd probably make up their new root uh, being philox ten exenerid which would be the love just means whatever it is. It just, it's gibberish. It is a combination of everything, and we can read it however we want to. Even the church has incorrectly assumed that love means love. That we should just come alongside the world, root them on in their circumstances, and just praise the way they do life. Just let love win, right? This is the mission statement of the Church of Unity by any means. And it's a biblical and logical fallacy. So we're going to start off with some logic here. And then we're going to get to the fallacy. Except none of these, <laughs> they're in black. <laughs> oh, I love this. Okay. Oh, no. Okay, I did. I did. Hey. hey. <laughs> so a fallacy, for anyone that doesn't know, a line of reasoning, a line of reasoning that at first seems solid, but cannot stand against rational arguments. An example, I need to love my neighbor. I do this by letting them do whatever they feel they need to do to be the person they want to be, right? You just let love love. So the flaw in this reason, for at least for Christians, in leaving people to do their own to their own devices, we doom them to an eternity in hell. No man comes to the Father except through his Son. So it doesn't seem very loving when you think about it like that, right? We just let them be themselves and end up in hell. Seems super loving. So then, this year happened. Something changed. We all knew it. We all felt it. But we couldn't quite put our fingers on what it was exactly. Was it COVID? Was it the election? The lockdowns? The mostly violent protests? Yes. I still don't know exactly what changed, but something did. It was at this point that the refiner's fire came down and separated the gold from the ore. Evangelifish leaders began calling for unity. Whether it was unity with President-elect Biden and Vice President Harris, or between church branches that had split so far away from orthodoxy, I have trouble calling them the church. Looking at you, Episcopalians. <laughs> Our prominent thought leaders like Dr. Russell Moore, Dr. Albert Moeller, Tim Keller, John Piper all began saying, hey, we've got to be okay with these people that, that want to make debauchery and paganism the law of the land. They want us to pledge our loyalty and our unity with lawlessness. To follow someone that wants to make the wanton murder of children tax-funded in the law of the land. They want the moral to unite with the amoral. Not set ourselves apart, but assimilate. During church lockdowns, churches, or during the lockdowns, churches decided that we needed to come along public schools and adopt all the same health standards and government-run agents that government-run agencies said they needed. Those of us that wanted to talk about these things before submitting to authority were told, no, the church might lose its 501c3 status. <laughs> all of this for unity, all to love our neighbors. So now I'm not going to say that there isn't supposed to be unity within the church. That's, it's biblical, and I'm going to show exactly what that unity should look like, though. So unity is mentioned five times throughout the Old and New Testament, which seems like a small number, right? 
So the first time it's mentioned is in Psalm 133.1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That word unity right there is yahad. Obviously a Hebrew word since we're in the Old Testament. It means a single unit. The second time it's brought up is in, well, the second one I'm going to list, is John 17.23. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly united, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. So there the word unity is the Greek word heis, also numeral one, one, singular. In Colossians 3.14, bear with one another and forgive any complaint you may have against someone else. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which is the bond of perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. For this, you were called as members of one body and be thankful. So for here, the Greek here for perfect unity is syndesmos teleotit, long word. So it means forming a perfect bond in maturity. Now, Four and five here are the same, and they're both from the same chapter, both written by Paul. And so I'm going to really, really focus in on these because Paul, as we know, was a big proponent for unity. He was, he was more about unity than he was about keeping the peace, which that's going to come in here. So in Ephesians 4, 3. In all humility and gentleness, with all patience, bearing with one another in love and with the diligence to persevere the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So that one is henoteta, which is oneness, unanimity, a unanimous act throughout the church. And then the fifth one is the same as the fourth. Ephesians 4.13, to equip the saints for works of ministry and to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, as we mature in the full measure of the stature of Christ. So that is the same one, same as above. So we have three distinct definitions in the New Testament alone. We have heis, one, singular. We have syndesmos teleotetos. Hey, there we go, I said it. Forming a bond of perfect unity in maturity, and henoteta, oneness, unanimity, the state of being unanimous. Oh, really hates it when I go back. So I'm going to focus in on that one, oh, and then it brings back a blank slide. The one in Ephesians, because the context there lets us see what Paul is talking to the church in the way that they should be unified across the church. So this helps us understand what kind of unity to pursue as Christians. I apologize. More so, the prepositional phrases in front of the perfect unity, yes, I know a few things about English language, <clears throat> even though I'm a chemist, help shed direct light on what kind of unity. So should Christians be uniting in, with the world and with the culture? Okay, good, good. Right answer. Right answer. It's up on the board. That's the number one answer. 
So Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. James 4, 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 2 Corinthians 6, 17, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And lastly, I had, I had a lot of verses. I just went with fives. Six, sorry. First Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a loyal priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim his excellence, the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So it sounds like the world's a dark place. So by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So I'm going to ask the question again, even though we already got the right answer. Should Christians be uniting with the world and our culture? How about no? <laughs> so, blessed are the peacemakers. So the Bible obviously calls for unity, especially from Paul. Paul feared loss of unity more than loss of peace, which is evident because Paul's call to not, less, not let false doctrine into the church. We should no more tolerate false doctrine than we should tolerate sin. The thing about peacemakers is they're not always kitty soft paws, right? They keep the peace by reinforcing God's word and not letting well-meaning but woefully misunderstanding slash maybe spiritually young Christians make changes to doctrine. There it is. So in Matthew 5, 9 through 10, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been prosecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 1 Timothy 1, 3. As I urged you on my departure to Macedonia, you should stay on at Ephesus to instruct certain men not to teach false doctrines. 1 Timothy 6.3 If anyone touches and teaches another doctrine and disagrees with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and with godly teachings, they are conceited and understand nothing. <clears throat> 2 Peter 2.1 Now there were also false prophets among you in the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And Galatians 2.4, the issue arose because some false brothers had come under false pretenses to spy on our freedom in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. So that goes back to the issue of circumcision there in Galatians 2.4. And 2 Corinthians 11, 12 through 14, 
But I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to undercut those who want an opportunity to be regarded as our equals in the things of which they boast. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So blessed are the peacemakers and darned are the false prophets. So the, these biblical calls for unity, and I think it's important to also remember that we don't all think alike, right? Jordan and Jordan, even though we have the same name, same beards, same great looks. Uh, we also have the same great looks as the guy I'm going to pop here onto the screen. Um, you know, we don't think alike. We're never going to, and, and I think uh, Charles Spurgeon has a... Uh, I always thought he looked like Christian. You know, there's some truth to that. Or does Schindler look like him? So... I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon. If you haven't, I recommend going under YouTube or Rumble and listening to his sermons. Um, otherwise, you know, you can go on Amazon and buy, like, his, like, full set of hundreds of sermons um, for, like, 115 bucks. I kind of want it just because it would look cool. Um, plus all the things that are good and that are in there. Um, but in his, uh, in his sermon, The Importance of Small Things in Religion, from April 8th, 1860. So think about that. 160 years ago. What I'm going to read to you is going to read like something we could hear any day. It is not likely that we should all see eye to eye. You cannot make a dozen watches tick to the same time, much less make a dozen men think the same thoughts. But still, if we should all bow our thoughts to that one written word and would own no authority except the Bible... The church could not be divided and could not be cut into pieces as she is now. That was 160 years ago. And you think we're like, you would think like, man, if I could just go back in time, everything would be so much easier and simpler and wouldn't be all this crazy stuff going on. Eh, every era has had their issues. Every era has had their separation from Christ. Um, they can make a dozen watches together now. Though. Yeah, they can. Yeah. <laughs> They can make a dozen men think alike also. <laughs> that's, that's been shown, yeah. That's true. It's that darn TikTok, right? Easy nose here. <laughs> so the, the false church of unity by any means. It's the wolf in sheep clothing, right? So pastors, or any kind of shepherd really, Bible study leaders, anything, should be willing to risk everything to keep false doctrine out of the church. They should make peace by rooting out liars, snakes, and deceivers. They should not be timid men and let heresy go unchecked. For true unity is the pure, unadulterated word of God, not in worldly compromise with the flesh and heretics. Satan is cunning. Do you have the eyes and ears to hear it and to see it? He has taken the literal words of Jesus, love thy neighbor, and cut them from context and twisted them to make shepherds lead their flocks into an unholy union with his worldly and maybe sometimes unknowing disciples. Okay, so from top, top left, we've got Benny Hinn, we've got Kenneth Copeland, we've got Joel Olstein, John Piper, Tim Keller, and Russell Moore. I think he's 
So Russell Moore was on the spiritual advisement committee for President Barack Obama as one of the heads of the Southern Baptist Church. Didn't they just part ways with him? Well, yeah, I think... The SBC did after two years of considering and thinking. Yeah, yeah. which I mean, they made the right call. <clears throat> so how do we love our neighbors? You know, we, we've talked about all these different kinds of love, and we've defined it, we've set the terms, we've looked at the terms, we've dissected the terms... We know what kind of unity we should be striving for. And we know how we should love our neighbor. So how do we do it? We should do it as God shows his love. So how does he do it? He shows it in his general goodness over the unbeliever's life. He shows it by having sorrow and pity over the plight of their lives. And he shows great admonition in giving warnings through the gospel message, through parables like the Good Samaritan that maybe learned and intellectuals don't see, but the common man can. Jesus was amazing at using the questions asked by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees not only to evangelize the crowd, but also to personally evangelize to them. So how do we do it? We love our neighbors as ourselves. We be kind. We show compassion, which is hard. I'm not, I, like, I went into this and I thought, oh, I'm going to find all the right ways to prove that me being angry and bitter all the time at these people being stupid and willfully ignorant of God, and then I'm going to feel better about myself. <laughs> well, well, you know, as the Lord does, he, uh, he had some words for me. But we be kind, we show compassion. And for Christ's sake, we show them the gospel. We stop letting them steer their own life into unwitting and flagrant sin and warn them of the upcoming judgment and assuage their fears by sharing the good news of Christ's death and resurrection. Because if we truly want to love thy neighbor as thyself, we have to give them the same good news that we relish and rejoice in daily. That Jesus, the Son of God, came down to this earth born 100% God and 100% man, lived a sinless life, and then sacrificed his perfect life so that his perfect blood could cover our sins. If only we choose to love and follow him for the rest of our lives. We have to be able to thresh the wheat. We have to be able to separate the, ch the chaff from the seed. It's not our job to make people believe. We can plant the seed. And then God knows what they need in their lives to have their minds open and have their hearts open to do those things. But if we're not at least planting the seed, if we're not throwing the seed on the ground, even though it might not grow, we're not doing our job and we're not loving our neighbor. Because all of us, and I, don't, I, I can't say not all of us, I don't know everyone's heart in this room. But for those of us that know Christ, that's the biggest act of self-love that we've ever committed for ourselves is to understand that we are sinful creatures and that we are on the road to hell except for that sacrifice and except for changing how we live and living and being imitators of Christ and having relationship with Christ. And so I'm going to say this one more time because if we truly want to love thy neighbor as thyself, we have to give them the same good news that we relish and rejoice in daily. 
that Jesus, the Son of God, came down to this earth, born 100% God and 100% man, lived a sinless life, and then sacrificed his perfect life so that his perfect blood could cover our sins if only we choose to love and follow him for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this beautiful weather, Lord God. I thank you for the sunshine and just the general warmth as we come out of winter. Lord God, I thank you for this Bible study. I thank you for the people here with their open hearts and their open minds, Lord God. I hope and I pray that I spoke your words through my mouth, Lord. And I thank you for the people here. And I, and I just, I ask that you be with us as the week comes and that you remind us on a daily basis to spread the seed, Lord. To tell those that even though we may not like and that we may have disagreements with and we may just have a hard time talking to, Lord, that you are Lord and you are perfect and you have the way out of their fear, out of their condemnation. Lord God, we thank you and we praise your holy name. Amen.